Now, we're in the book of John. All along the way, Jesus is doing something. He's setting up signposts, saying, here's the way. This is who I am. It's like if you're, it's like if you're, you're on a trip, you know, and in, in those way back days before there was GPS. You know, you really relied on the signs on the highway to know where you should get off, where you should get on, that type of thing. And those signs would say, okay, this is the way you go if you want this. This is the way, and they still say that. This is the way you go if you want this. And Jesus is setting up signposts. He's laying down markers in the first five chapters here of showing what he's about, who he is, why he does what he does. Who does God love? Who does the Father's heart break for? He shows that, and he's been showing it to us. He shakes up the status quo. He's always in trouble with the religious authorities. He's breaking down barriers in ways that people couldn't imagine in those days, and even in ways that we can struggle with in our days. He's, he's, breaking, down, he's breaking down cultural barriers. He's breaking down religious barriers. He's breaking down racial barriers. He's breaking down uh, sexual barriers. All these barriers that he just plows over, and everyone is astounded and astonished by what he's doing. And he's going to continue to do that in the passage that we look at today. This is what he's about. And John now is giving us a snapshot of his life. John shows him meeting with John the Baptist and the interaction there. Then John shows a man named Nicodemus, one of the rich and powerful, coming to meet him, asking about eternal life, asking about the things that are important. And Jesus deals with him. And then and then what does he do? He, he, he meets a Samaritan woman, someone at the very bottom. And then the, the last passage we looked at, a, a centurion, an occupying, or not a centurion, a, a, a leader in the government. He's a part of the occupying force that is holding the Jews under their thumb. And Jesus heals his son. Jesus challenges him, trust my word, go, your son is healed. Trust me and go. And the man has to make a decision. And what does he do? I trust you. And he starts walking. Which is just what Jesus is saying to us today. Sometimes it looks like it's impossible. Sometimes it looks like, and I'm asking you, he says, to trust me and go. And see what I work out as you walk in faith. And now we come to another person. So we're seeing the top and we're seeing the bottom and, 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 and we're seeing the top of the food chain, but everybody hates them. And now we're going to see someone who's at the bottom of the food chain. Um, one of my favorite books is A Tale of Two Cities, so that influenced me. This, uh, this little passage is a tale of three encounters, and so that's what we're going to look at as we look at this. We're going to see the first encounter. It's the healer, and it says, some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. All right, just setting the scene. It's going to be crowded. It's a festival. Now there's there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. All right? So now John is telling us something, and we are not necessarily familiar with what he's telling us about. He's talking about the Sheep Gate. What the heck is that? He's talking about this pool of Bethesda that has these colonnades around it. Like, that seems to be something, this pool seems to be something that's fairly important, but we might not know that. And so this is where we need to do a little cultural work. We need to do a little archaeological work or historical work. So I'm going to, here is, this is a picture, a, a, 
of, of someone who rebuilt the, uh, the temple. It's, it's a smaller, but he rebuilt it. These people rebuilt it to scale. You can go to Israel and see it today. It's, it's a huge uh, draw for people. And so this is the temple. Now, on some festivals, there would be twenty to 25,000 people inside those four walls. So get the scale of this. This is huge. This is the temple. And on one side is a gate, and it's on the right side in this picture. On the right side is a gate. It's called the sheep gate. They call it that because they would bring sheep in there for the sacrifices. But people came through there, too. It wasn't only for sheep, you know. It was a big, a lot of people came from that way. And if you look at this on the right-hand side, you can see at the top right corner, there's four towers. This is the Fortress Antonia. And what this is, is this is a Roman garrison that was put there because the Romans figured out that a lot of their problems with the Jews started right there at the temple. And so anytime, anytime there was anything big, that garrison was staffed with a battalion of centurions and, and footmen, and they stood guard looking down. That was built right there so they could look down into the temple. And we do know that at one point that, that there started to look like a rebellion, and they marched out, got to all the gates, closed them off, and then marched in and slaughtered 10,000 people to tell them, no, this is Rome. You're under our thumb. See why they hate Rome? See, we have to understand, they have to get that feeling. They hate Rome. Rome kills their people. Rome uh, uh, laid heavy, heavy taxes on them. Um, Some historians estimate that in about 30 years, half of the Jewish population lost their land to the Romans because of the heavy taxation that was going on. So they hate Rome. All right, so that's what the temple looks like. Now here... These, this is the, the pool of Bethesda. And actually, it's kind of two pools with a dike between them. And if you see there, it says the North Temple Wall, right about there is where the Sheep Gate is. There's Antonia. There's the fortress that we were just talking about. So if you look at this, you can see there's two pa- a path coming in from the top, a path coming in from the right, and then one heading to the left. This is where people funneled in to go to the temple to worship. On festivals, it was incredibly crowded. And what's important about the pool of Bethesda, it was, a, it was called a mikvah. It was a ceremonial pool of cleansing so that pilgrims who came in had to walk down into the pool. And the pool, they've excavated it now. They found the pool of Bethesda. And it has these long steps so that people can walk into the water as the water slowly rises and immerse themselves for ritual cleansing so that now they're considered clean and they can go into the temple. So this was important. There, there was one other pool that, that on the other side that was for that too, so that it could handle as many people. But these, were, these things are huge. They're huge. You can get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in them at the same time. And so here we have, here we have Jesus. He goes down there. He goes to the sheep gate where there's a pool. And it's surrounded by five colonnades. There's a great number of disabled people. That's where they used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Why did they lay there? Why did they lay there? Well, and we're going to get into this, but there was a belief that every once in a while, the pool would be stirred by an angel or something, and the first one in got instantly healed. We don't have any record of it ever happening, but that was the belief. But there's another side to this. This is one of the most heavily trafficked areas. This is the perfect place for begging. You have people coming for a festival. 
They've been saving up their money because Jews were commanded to save up a certain percentage of their money that then they would use to eat and drink while they were there, to give to the temple, to buy a sacrifice. So they would be coming in with money. They would be celebrating often. And so they would be inclined to give. And so that would be the place You'd stake out a place where people would see you and you'd beg for alms. So this would be a very noisy place. It would be full of people, full of people who were disabled, crying for alms. And, 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 and this is the part that makes it very difficult in, in a sense. So then all these healthy, well people would have to walk through all these disabled people to get to the water and then turn around and walk out. And then they, by right, because they were ceremonial cleansed, they could go into the temple. The very place every one of those disabled people were forbidden to go because the Jews believed that if you were disabled, it's because of sin. And if you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't be disabled. You wouldn't be blind. You'd be able to hear. You'd be able to talk. You'd be able to walk. You'd be able to whatever it is. So all these people that wish they could go to the temple have to watch all these people who can walk through them, go back. It's an incredibly ironic picture and a very difficult picture. If you've ever been to a country that that is in desperate, desperate poverty, you've seen something like this. You've seen something. I remember being in a country and walking through and just seeing people sitting on the side of the road, begging, disabled in all sorts of ways. And coming up, the missionaries that we were there with, we came up to one man. His family was rather large. And so when he was born, his parents broke his legs so that he would be disabled to beg from all the white people that came for off the cruise ships and make his family money. He was the one chosen and so this is, this is you, anywhere you'll see this all over the world. And so it's, a, it's the place where people would be begging. Bethesda is the pool of mercy. You can imagine these disabled people saying, be merciful, be merciful. Bethesda, Bethesda, for me, to me. So when we read that, there is a disputed part of this passage that we need to address. I stopped at the end of verse 3. Verse four, end of verse 3 and verse 4 is a passage that is disputed, and here's why it's disputed. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. It gives us information concerning that pool. And what they think probably happened was, as manuscripts were being copied and spreading throughout the world, somebody was saying, wait, these people in Rome won't understand what's going on at the pool of Bethesda. So they wrote in, you know, possibly in brackets, an explanation. But it's not in the oldest manuscripts, and it seems to have been added in between 200 and 300 AD. All right? And this is what verse 3 End of verse 3 and verse 4 say, Paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down in certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first stepped in after the stirring up of the water was made well from whatever disease which he was afflicted. All right? So somebody added, they realized people don't understand. This is the background of what's going on. So they added that in. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. So probably in most of your Bibles, your, your, your uh, 
Bible will skip from verse 3 to verse 5. And so that's why that's there. In verse 5, it says, one who, was, who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, this is an interesting question, isn't it? And I, and I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but you're kind of like, come on, Jesus. This is kind of awkward, a little bit obvious, right? Can you imagine the man? Do I want to get well? Are you looking at me? Do I want to get well? But there's something important going on here. Because here's the thing. This man, every day, he's brought there. He knows he can't do what's required. He can't get up and get in the water. And so Jesus is pushing him. And, the, and, and he's, he's telling him, he's saying, I want you to understand something. I'm going to push you here. Why? Because Jesus walked up there and he looks and there's all these people who are disabled. And he knows what they're trusting in. They're trusting in the water. That's their hope. That's their trust. That's their rest. That's the only thing they can think of. And it's just like us. We all trust in something. We're made this way. And everyone has and can have false trusts, false hopes, false schemes, false protectors, false saviors. Everyone has things they hope in. Everyone has things they trust in. Because we're all made this way. We're made to be religious. We're made to worship. We're made to trust. It's a, what, it's a part of our DNA. And the question then becomes, what do we worship? And what do we trust? These people were trusting a long-held belief that getting in the water first would heal them. And so Jesus goes up to this man. And what's so interesting is this man has not asked Jesus as far as we know for anything. Jesus just walks up to him. This guy does not know who Jesus is. And he just pushes him a little bit. He's saying, what are you trusting? I think the second interesting thought here is this obvious question is because Jesus knows human nature, and he's pushing him to change. It's very interesting reading up on this and doing some studying. There's a phenomenon that psychologists talk about where many times a person who is in a very miserable situation is incredibly reluctant to make the changes necessary to find relief or healing in their situation. Their misery becomes safety to them. This life may suck, but it's my life. It's my life. Because they don't see other options as being viable for themselves, so they're reluctant to get out of what could be an incredibly miserable situation. In, in many ways, and it's interesting reading some of, the, some of the literature on this, they embrace it. They're like, no, no, I like it. I like the way my life is. And I think Jesus here sees a man who's lost hope of recovery. He's settled in his fate. And there's a kind of safety in having an excuse for why you're in the situation you're in. And we see in Jesus here this almost like an intervention, rousing him back to his freedom of choice. Now, how do I, how do I jump to this? I don't think it's a big jump. This conclusion, this man has settled in his fate and, and, and has just starting to just accept it. Well, his answer, 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. When I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What does the guy say? He saying, I got no hope. I can't walk. This guy's got a broken arm. He can walk. He'll get there ahead of me. That guy over there is blind, but he's pointed in the right direction. He'll get in before me. That guy can't talk. He's going to get in before me. I can't walk. I have no hope. I have no hope. See, this is where Jesus has pushed him to, to admit, to say it. I have no hope. There's no hope here. So every day he's brought there. He can't do what's required. So he just begs because healing is not an option for him anymore. He's given up on that. And so Jesus here pushes him to admit that he's helpless. That's very key. Not just in his life, but in our lives. Jesus is constantly pushing us to admit something. I can't do it. If you are not a Christian, that's where he's pushing you. If you are a Christian, that's where he's pushing you because we still harbor these ideas that we can make it happen. And he's saying, no, you can't. He gets him to admit that what he's doing is not working. Again, remember, he doesn't know who Jesus is. This is a very important point. This man has no faith because he doesn't have a clue what's going on. He doesn't have a clue who he's talking to. I want to tell you something. Too many times in our world, in our culture, and people say, oh, this didn't happen, or I didn't get this, or blah, blah, blah. and people say, you must not have had enough faith. Okay, this contradicts that right off. This man had no faith. He didn't even know who he was dealing with. But all Jesus needs, all Jesus needs is the admission, I have no hope. I can't do it. That's all he needs. He can work with that. And Jesus, Jesus found me when I was trusting other things for my life. And he saw that I didn't want to change. He pushed me to see my failures. He made me see that my way was false and not working. He pushed me to see that I was helpless. That's what happened to me. I think there's many people here who could testify that's what happened to them. We've all come to Christ in many different ways. I understand that. But he wants us to see that we're helpless. We cannot do it. And faith can start without a lot of knowledge. It just starts like with that rich nobleman. It starts with stepping out on a word from Jesus, believing what he says, and starting, starting to walk. And so then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. It's interesting, looking at the Greek here, the Greek says, Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. This is not a temporary thing. You're going to walk for the rest of your life. That's what he's saying. Get up and walk. But he says something very easy. He doesn't say just get up. He says, pick up your mat. Why does Jesus tell him to pick up his mat? Well, maybe he doesn't want him to forget it, right? Mats weren't particularly expensive things. But Jesus knows something is being set up here. Something's going to happen here. And I love this. this is, I love this. Jesus intervened in the life of a man who did not ask him to intervene. 
I am thankful for that. Jesus did intervened in my life, and I did not ask him to intervene. In fact, I told him I didn't want him to intervene. I shook my fist at him. I said, never, never will I follow you. And Jesus didn't give up. So he said, get up and walk. Take up your mat, walk and walk and walk. So that's the first encounter with the healer. Here's the second encounter with the legalists. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they said to him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? Pick it up and walk. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. It was very crowded. Jesus just walked away. I think the man more than likely was making his way to the temple because if you've been healed, the Old Testament says the next thing you do is present yourself to the priests in the temple to show them that you've been healed so you're now clean to worship in the temple. So he's like, this is what I've dreamed of. For 38 years, I've sat here and looked at that gate where everyone goes in and worships and wished I could be a part of it. I hear the singing. I hear the musical instruments. I hear the prayers. I hear the, the chanting. I hear the laughter. I hear the crying. I hear everyone there worshiping God, and I can't go in. And suddenly, I can go in. So he comes walking in, and people stop him and say, hey, why are you carrying your mat? Now, that's a weird thing, isn't it? That's a weird thing. It's not like, dude, <laughs> you're healed. Holy mackerel, he's healed. Hey, did you look at that? Remember him? No, they're like, hey, why are you carrying your mat? So here we have an encounter with something, and this is important for us because this sets up something we're going to see throughout the book of John and that we've already seen some. We see people who are trusting, we see people who are trusting a pool to heal them, and now we see some people who are trusting something else. Just religion, working hard and trusting something to save you, based on man's ability, based on your ability. And it is, <clears throat> excuse me, it is equally as wrong. Jesus showed this man his ability was worthless and that it was all about Jesus' ability. And now we come and we see again a system of laws the Jews had built up around the commands of God. Because you see in verse 12, their outrage. They said, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And that word fellow was a dismissive word. Who is this idiot, this dummy, who would tell you to pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath? Now, what is this about, all right? God said, keep the Sabbath holy. All right, this is important. Keep the Sabbath holy. And uh, let's see here, there it is. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And you're not supposed to work. So immediately for the, for the Jews, they started thinking, well, what is holy and what is work? And they started parsing and analyzing. But I just want to make a side note here. When I get more upset about a human law being broken than I do about the law of God being broken, I have a real serious problem. And that is something we can struggle with in this day. When I'm more worried about the will of human beings than I'm worried about the will of God, I have a serious problem. And so we have this 
We've already talked about it a little bit before, but we need to talk about it a little more now. The Jews started analyzing what is holy, what is work. We've got to figure this out because we want to keep the Sabbath, right? So don't work and keep it holy. They took the law and they expanded it into dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of regulations that they believe express the law the whole time missing the whole point of the law. But let me give you some examples because this is important. This, this helps us understand the, the cultural milieu of that day, right? Uh, first of all, you weren't supposed to carry anything on the Sabbath because that was considered to be work. And so the Jews started expanding these laws, and they said, well, take, for instance, a handkerchief, even something as small as a handkerchief. If you carry this on the Sabbath, you're working. That's against the law. But, but, there's always a but in there. If you tie it around your wrist, now you're wearing it. That's not work. It's not against the law. If that man had tied his mat around his neck like a cape, they would have been fine with it because he'd have been wearing it. See, this is what religious legalism does to us. They believed you couldn't practice medicine on the Sabbath because that was work. Now, you could save a life, whatever it took to save a life, you could do, but you couldn't practice medicine. I'll give you a for instance. They had, they had, they had tons of laws on, on explaining what that meant. Here's one of them. Back then, you know, medicine, there was a lot of remedies. And one, one for a toothache or a, an infection in your mouth was vinegar, which actually does kind of work on that. Some people still use that, right? And so what would they do? They would pour vinegar in their mouth and swish it around and spit it out and pour a little more, swish it around and spit it, and it would, it would give them some relief. But that's practicing medicine. So you're not allowed to put vinegar in your mouth and swish it around and spit it out on the Sabbath because that's work. But if you're having a piece of bread and you soak that sucker with, with vinegar like crazy and you stick it in your mouth and you just hold it against that tooth with that piece of bread, that's okay because you're eating. Now, do you see what religious observance does, what law does, what legalism does? It takes something that's good and it perverts it. One thing that Jesus talks about later a few times in, in the Gospels that you'll run up against, they had this, uh, uh, this, all these laws about what is a promise. They say, of course, you, sh- you, you should keep your promise. That's by the law of God. You should keep your promise. Well, well, back then, they had a habit of, I swear by, and they would name something, you know. I swear by this. Um, um, there, there's one example that we know of from extra biblical literature that a young man said, I swear as your son that I will take care of you, mom and dad, in your old age. As your son, I swear on my head, I will take care of you. Now, what is breaking a promise? They started analyzing that. And so they decided, if you swear by the throne of God, you have to keep that promise. If you swear by, this is what's crazy, if you swear by the gold in the temple, you have to keep that promise. If you swear by something on earth, like a mountain or land or yourself, You don't have to keep that promise. That's not considered breaking a promise if you don't keep it. And later, Jesus, when he starts talking about the Pharisees as vipers and and as he uses all these evil, one of the things he talks about them is the way they mishandle promises. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that's what he's talking about there, that they have all these crazy laws. They miss the point of the law. Why? 
because they wanted to measure how they were doing. Isn't that something that's very natural for us? I want to know if I'm in or out. Am I good or bad? How am I doing compared to everyone else? So they wanted to measure. So they made up all these laws so they could measure. They wanted to know who was good and who was not. And they felt like they were doing good. Just like we see with the Pharisee, with the tax collector, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. This is what I do. Uh, 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 uh. He doesn't do that. I'm better than him. And so they created all these laws so that they could feel better about themselves. They could say, I'm good, and God loves me because I'm working so hard to obey him. But that brings into a question, and we have to dig into this to understand all that's going on. What is the law about? They had all their ideas and interpretations where they went crazy with it, but what is the law about? A man came and asked Jesus, what's the most important? And Jesus said, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus basically says, you get these two right, you got the whole thing right. Simple, right? Two, until you start going, all, all, all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. Love my neighbor as myself. See, Jesus is saying God wants a heart that's totally given to him. And it all boils down to some basic principles. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then, I mean, if you really think about this, think about it. Do you serve your neighbor with the same joy, same intensity, same purpose, and same speed as you serve yourself? Are you as happy for your neighbor when things are going great as when they're going great for you? Are you as quick to attend to your neighbor's needs as you are to your needs? You see where this goes? It's like, I can't do that. That's impossible. And if you read that in that story, what did the man after that say to Jesus? Uh, who's my neighbor? He was like, man, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta clarify. You gotta narrow this down because I can't just go around helping everybody. And so we look at that and we say, well, that's impossible. And Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan helps us remember what the neighbor is. The neighbor is those that we know that are in trouble in pain or in need, that we could help, that's your neighbor. Well, that's impossible. I mean, I'm, I'm free to admit that. And, and, the question, and the answer is, yeah, it is impossible. The law is the picture of God's goodness, God's greatness, God's love. That's what the law is. The law answers the question, what is God like? God serves others as quickly, as attentively, as he would serve, in a sense, himself. He serves to the point of sending his son and allowing his son to die for people who could care less, his neighbors. And the law is telling us, this is potentially what you could be, a woman, a man, of justice, of honor, of integrity, of mercy, of love. But sin has messed us up, and we can't do it. So we look elsewhere. We look elsewhere for meaning and purpose and safety and trust. And the law keeps showing us over and over and over, see, that doesn't work either. That doesn't work either. You can't do it. You can't do it. 
You're not that good. And that's the purpose of the law. The law is not to save us. The law shows us what we could be. We could be righteous. We could be merciful. We could be graceful. We could be loving. We could be serving. And we keep up this performance thing where we try hard and we put on a face to be just right towards people even though it's not really who we are. And we fake it. And we try and try and try and it doesn't work. I mentioned this earlier. There's a thirst in us that only God can slake. Only God can take care of that thirst. And some people... And I see this sometimes talking with people in their effort uh, to, to quench that thirst. They'll, they'll turn away from the law. They'll turn away from the Bible. They'll, they would be right now saying, Bob, you are so right. Those self-righteous, legalistic, religious people are the worst. They're hypocrites. So I gave it all up. I'm not religious. I'm not a spiritual person anymore. I'm not under the law anymore. But what I say to those people is, you've just traded one law for another. Because it's still there. It's still there. The Bible says we can't run from it. It's embedded in our hearts and our conscience. They're self-evident. Love, integrity, honesty, service. These aren't things that anyone is against, right? I mean, nobody is pro-murder, right? Nobody's pro-lying. Nobody's like, yeah, I'm starting a new party. It's the stealing party. No, everybody knows deep down that we should all be this way. Honest, no lying, integrity, loving, merciful, serving, forgiving. We all, everybody's like, yeah, those are good. We're all for that. But the problem is we aren't that. Deep down, we know we're made for this and we keep falling short. We have this thirst and nothing quenches it. And we try lots of ways. And one of the ways is what we're seeing here with these religious people, with these Jewish leaders. They try to quench it through religiosity, I call it. Making lots of rules and learning. Okay, I'm okay here. I'm okay. I broke that promise. But it turns out that's a promise you can break and you're still okay. So I'm still okay. And I did all that kind of stuff. I tithe on this. I tithe on this. I tithe on this. I hate him. But that's okay because I do this. And so they have this religious, this, this whole religious life they've built up. And you can say, no one has power over me, and I'm going to do what I want. But that simply leads to another form of enslavement. Because you will never be able to do whatever you want. It never happens. And then what happens? That leads to the abuse of people as you try to get more and more what you want. And you become a controller. Because what are controllers? people trying to get what they want. So the law creates this thirst. How do we quench this thirst? So we have the first encounter of the healer. The second encounter is with the legalists. The third encounter is with the Savior. And I want to say this too, that second encounter with the legalists, we're going to see this over and over and over as we go through John. As they keep coming back with their laws and their laws and their laws. Because it's what they trust. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, this is interesting to me. Because first of all, it seems like Jesus is being a little bit abrupt, right? A little bit, you know, you better watch out. Mack you in the face, right? If you do something wrong, boop, right on the head. 
right? That's it's what it feels like, kind of. And secondly, does it kind of feel like this guy rats Jesus out in a heartbeat? He's like, oh, I'm going to tell. And he goes running off. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. It's one of those kids, you know, that you knew in elementary school. It just tattled every chance they had, and you just, duh, right? I don't know, maybe, okay, maybe you were the tattler. I shouldn't be mean. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't like him, I'll tell you that. But what's going on here? Okay, first of all, the festival temple is very crowded. So Jesus finds him in the temple. This is great. The man has been able to go into the temple. He hasn't done that in 38 years. He's going in to present himself as healed. And we have this interaction, and we're hampered a little bit by the fact that we don't quite understand culture and customs of that day. Remember earlier when we said Jesus spoke to Mary, and he said, woman, blah, 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 and, 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 and half the audience like gets their back up, right? But Jesus wasn't saying that in a, how we would take it. If somebody said to somebody here, woman, what do you have to do with this? You'd be mad, wouldn't you? Yes, you would. But that actually was more of a term of endearment. It was almost like dear lady. It, it, it wasn't a negative thing. We see it as negative because we're in the 21st century. But in those days, that wasn't negative. This is a very similar thing. I think there's a lot here that we, we're missing. We have some clues that we're missing it. But there's some here that we're missing because we're just not familiar with, with how this would be said or how things would be spoken. It's, a, you know, it's just a different way of interacting with people in that day. And when Jesus um, um, comes to anyone me, you, anyone, this man. Often at first we're like, I'm not sure what to do, but I'm helpless. I'm at the end of my rope and I'm willing to do what you say. That's how Jesus starts. That's how he started with this man. The man admitted, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. And Jesus said, got you. Pick up that man up and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And the man did. He did. He could have just sat there, but I don't know. I mean, if I was in his place, I'd be like, I don't think this really happened, but I'm gonna try. And he got up and he walked. But Jesus never leaves us there with that. He keeps teaching. He keeps taking us deeper. And that's what he's doing here with this man. He's pushing him beyond. He brought, he says, look, you know, he says in, the, in this passage, he says, see, you're well again. I did that. You see that. You're well. But there's more. But there's more. And he seems to be saying almost like this. He seems to be saying, you gave me what you thought was your problem, but it's deeper than that. There's a thirst in your soul, and I'm living water. Stop living for yourself. Start living for me. That's where the true rest is. See, he's saying, okay, now's his time to make a change. And it's interesting. We don't know if the man ever followed through. I mean, he went and told, oh, the man's name is Jesus, but we don't know if there was any malice in that. It, it may not have been any malice at all but we don't know if he ever followed through. We're left with that. We're left hanging. And actually, that's a good place to be. Because the question then is for us, are you going to follow through? Wherever you are at, if you don't know Jesus, the first step is admitting that you're helpless and hopeless and admitting that he is your savior and embracing what he's done for you. But after that, there'll be more times of admitting you're helpless and hopeless. There'll be more times where you sit and you go, I mean, we've all been there, I think. Times in your life, times in my life where I'm like, man, God, I keep screwing this up. And if you're honest, deep down inside, you go, I hate me. I hate what I do. And Jesus is like, okay, you're helpless and hopeless. This is a good place. Now let's talk about what I've done for you. 
Because that's how Jesus starts. He says, see, you're healed. I did that for you. The Bible constantly talks about over and over and over, from, from, from the beginning to the very end, the idea of remembering. The idea of remembering what God has done in the past. Because that is a great comfort to us when we're in a situation where we don't understand what God is doing. And we're in a situation where, where we think everything has just you know, gone to hell in a handbasket and our life is miserable and worthless. And remembering, oh, he's done that, he's done that, he's done that. Oh, he's very important to remember. So what does he do? He reminds me, I say, okay, just so you remember, I'm the one. You're healed now, right? Now, move on. Next steps. And so for all of us looking at this story, I think there's some application that we can make here. We've talked about some of it as we moved along. But understanding that thirst is in every one of us. And there are issues in our lives that probably need to be confronted. Is there a sin that I or you are ignoring? Why do, why do, I, why do, you, why do we feel so restless sometimes, so anxious sometimes, stomach tied up in knots? There's something that needs to be confronted there. And this leads me to something that's biblical that God talks about all the time, but I, I want to lead into it with this interesting passage. I love this passage. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, you, and you come to me? See, John recognizes this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah. <laughs> I don't need to, I'm not baptized the Messiah. You baptize me, because I'm the sinner right here. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, hey, John, I've come to this earth, and I'm going to live the righteous life that none of these people could live. And I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead so that they can get my righteousness. The Bible talks about that, that when you become a Christian, Jesus' righteousness, the, the, the technical word is imputed on you, which, you know, I don't like the word imputed because it sounds like you're throwing up or something. Um, the, the word imputed means something is credited to your account. It's moved over into your account, and now it is yours. It is yours. The righteousness of Jesus is now on your account. Now, Think about the implications of that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, in some way, and I don't know how this works, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And my first thought is, no, he doesn't, because I don't see the righteousness of Jesus. I see all my failures. I see all the things I do wrong. I see you know, uh, I just see so much. And the Bible tells us, no. He sees because it's been moved into your account. It is now a part of you. Jesus, in this passage, is telling John the Baptist, I have to do everything just right because I'm going to live the righteous life. It's like he's saying to John, you know what, dude, you're right. There's no way in the world you should be baptizing me. But, I need to be baptized because that's part of the righteous life. And that's why John consented. That's why John said, ah, got you. Okay, let's do this. So, 
I think about for me and for you, Jesus is saying, I've come to do everything that is needed to live the perfect life, and I'm doing it for all of us. He's doing it for us, and he gives it to us. And so I was thinking about this. What's the difference then? What's the difference between a person who's a Christian and a person who's just very religious, whatever religion it is, even if it's not a religion, they follow it closely. What's the difference? It's not repentance. I don't think it's repentance necessarily because when a person who's religious tells a lie, oftentimes they will say, you know what, that was a lie. I'm sorry. They'll ask, they'll repent in a way and forget, just like a Christian would. They repent of the things they do wrong. But here's the difference. Christians don't just repent of their sins. They repent of their righteousness. I realize my work is not enough. The righteousness that I can work up in my own life is not enough. I repent of even my good things because they're not enough. I'm like the man sitting by the pool. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. And I may do some good things because I'm a human being and created in the image of God. And sometimes good things, we do them. We just do them. It's just, just the way it is. But ultimately, they're not enough. My works, and I know this, they don't quench the thirst. They don't quench the thirst. Not, oh, not over the long haul. Maybe little bits. They don't give me rest. The only rest that I have is in the work of Christ. That's the only rest. That's the only place I'm going to find it and truly experience the rest that God has for me, truly quench the thirst that God has put in me is when I rest in the work of Christ. And we have a passage here where this comes blazing to the front first and foremost. Jesus comes to a man who is in the lowliest of positions, a man that he shouldn't be associating with as a rabbi because that man is unclean. He breaks barriers. He breaks barriers. He heals him. He comes to a man, didn't even ask him to come to him, and he heals him without even being asked to heal. Right? He sets up this confrontation that's going to expose the legalistic standards of the Pharisees. And then he comes and finds that man, and he says, okay, you know, those are first steps, but there's more. He phrases it, go and sin no more, which is for them would be a phrase along the lines of now start following the life, going in the right direction, following me. And he's still doing that today. He's still doing that today. He's calling each one of us to follow him, to walk in his footsteps, to see where he's brought us and to keep going. Don't, don't get satisfied with where you're at. Don't be satisfied with just some. He goes, go for it all. Follow me. I will only rest, only find rest in the work of Christ. That's the only place it's possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Every, Lord, every Sunday I say that, but your word is life. It's where we find life. And so, Father, help us as we leave this place that we would become more and more like your son, Jesus. We would be more loving, more serving, more caring, more merciful, 
more interested in justice, more interest, more, have more integrity in all of these ways. And that as we follow you, as we walk in the light, John puts in, in, his, in his first John, as we walk in the light, we become more like Jesus. Father, we thank you for what you've done as we look back and remember. We thank you for what you're doing right now. And God, we thank you in anticipation of what you're going to do in the future, great and mighty things. And Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to be, call, be called a child of God. Help us to never take that for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.